Chapter 31 The Sailor's Return And then came the natives. The first to arrive was Mrs. Dixon. Just as the fire was beginning to burn, the shipwrecked sailors saw her coming down the field from the farm above Shark Bay, with a milk can in one hand and a big bucket in the other. And there was Mr. Dixon coming too, with a pair of oars over his shoulder. Mr. Dixon bailed their boat and pushed it out and rowed Mrs. Dixon across to the island, splashing as he rowed. Though the wind had gone down, there were still waves on the lake, even between the island and the shore. Whatever can they want? said Nancy. Peggy and Titty had gone up to the lookout point to look at the lake. They came running back to the camp. Captain Flint's coming, shouted Peggy. He's nearly here, and there's another rowing boat, and there's a launch in the distance. I think it's ours. Mother's in the other rowing boat with a native, said Titty. If it's the launch, our mother's in it. I bet you anything, said Nancy. There are still quite big waves down the lake, said Titty, but Mother's got past them all right. Everybody ran down to the landing place and got there just as Mr. Dixon stepped out and pulled his boat up. Mrs. Dixon clambered out with her big bucket and the milk can. She had a tray over the top of the bucket for a lid and steam was coming from under it. No, it isn't pigwash, she said, though you might think it. It's porridge for drowned rats, which is what I reckon you'd be. You've done well to get your fire lit at all. I could hardly rest for thinking of you in that storm. My word, how it did come down. And so you found Mr. Turner's box that was stolen. And I thought it was you that took it. Dixon told me the news when he came home from the village last night. The swallows and Amazons looked at each other. Did everybody know everything? Porridge! said Roger. Aye, porridge, said Mrs. Dixon. There's no room in anybody for a cold if they're full up with hot porridge, so I always say, have you got any spoons? Lots. I'll just slop the milk into the bucket and give it a stir round. I put the sugar in up at the farm. In another minute, the four swallows and the two Amazons were spooning hot porridge and milk out of the bucket and feeling each mouthful go scalding down their throats. This really is eating out of the common dish, said Titty. Then came Captain Flint. Good for you, Mrs. Dixon, were his first words. I ought to have thought of that. Porridge was the very thing. One, two, three, four, five, six. That's all right. Nobody washed away in the night. Seven, said Titty. You've forgotten my parrot. He said, Pretty Polly at the lightning and pieces of eight when it thundered. Seven, said Captain Flint, and two of the tents gone, I see. I was afraid they would. It was a wild go while it lasted. It was tough work bucketing into it even now, though the winds dropped, and the lake's nothing to what it was. It settles very quickly. Then came Mother from Hollyhow, rowed by that powerful native, Mr. Jackson. 
She had brought three big thermos flasks full of boiling cocoa. <coughs> Good morning, Mrs. Dixon, she said. That was very kind of you to think of coming across. I was afraid they'd not be able to get that fire lit. It's a wonder they have, said Mrs. Dixon. We haven't been able to boil a kettle yet, said Susan. We couldn't have lit it at all if Nancy hadn't thought of keeping some sticks dry. And you are the Amazons, said Mother, looking at Nancy and Peggy. Yes, said Nancy. And this is Captain Flint. His other name is Turner. How do you do, said Mother. And Captain Flint said how sorry he was he had not made friends with the swallows before. You don't know how much I owe to these children, he said. Children? snorted Nancy Baggett. Explorers and pirates, Captain Flint corrected himself. If it hadn't been for them, I should have lost all the work I've done this summer. I heard something about it last night from Mrs. Jackson, said Mother. I'm sure I'm very glad that they came, that they've been of some use. Their father seems to think they're not duffers, but sometimes I'm not so sure. Mother, said John, and Mother laughed. He's given me a parrot, said Abel Seaman Titty, and Mother had to go and look at it. He's going to give me a monkey, said Roger. What? said Mother. Captain Flint explained, and Mother said that it must be a little one. It shall be, ma'am, said Captain Flint. Mother looked at the wrecked tents. They're no good in a wind, she said. I remember once in the bush I was in a tent like that and it ripped to ribbons and was blown clean away. Well, she said, it's a good thing you haven't got to sleep in them tonight and a pity you didn't come home yesterday. I can hardly think so, ma'am, said Captain Flint. We wouldn't have found the treasure if we had, said Titty. The first thing to do is to put on some dry clothes, said Mother. I brought you a dry change for each of you four. Roger never got wet, said Susan. That's a good thing, said Mother. But you did, and so did John, and Titty looks like a dishcloth. Run down to the boat and ask Mr. Jackson for the bundle. Then came the launch, chug, chugging into the landing place and running its nose gently aground close by the three boats that were already there. The landing place was so crowded that it was almost as bad as Rio Bay. Captain Flint ran down there to meet the launch, and Mrs. Blackett jumped ashore into her brother's arms. She was a very little woman, not really much bigger than Nancy, and very like her. In the native talk that followed, her tongue went fastest. Captain Flint and Mrs. Walker just put in a word sometimes. I'm so glad you're here, Mrs. Blackett said to Captain Flint. Now then, Ruth, Nancy, when she's a pirate, my dear, said Captain Flint, give her her right name. Uh, Nancy then, and Peggy, skip into the launch, you harem scarums, and get into dry things. You'll find them in the cabin. And how do you do, Mrs. Walker? You've met my brother, I see. And my wild young ones. And so these are the swallows, who turned out to be so much better than somebody thought they were. She, too, had heard the news, even though she lived at the other side of the lake from Rio. Well, said Mrs. Dixon, I think I'll be going now, if you've done with that bucket. 
I've the chickens to feed, and Dixon will be wanting to get to his sheep. Both the mothers, and Captain Flint, and all the swallows and Amazons thanked her for bringing such a good breakfast. Aye, there's nothing like porridge, said Mrs. Dixon. Well, I suppose I shan't be seeing any of you in the morning. I shall quite miss it. I've come to be in the way of looking for you, but uh, perhaps you'll be coming again next year. Every year, forever and ever, said Titty. Aye, said Mrs. Dixon, we all think that when we're young. Mr. Dixon, who was waiting down by the boat, had said good morning when he came, and now he said good day to you as he rowed Mrs. Dixon away. He was always a very silent native. The others were not. They talked and talked, all native talk, about the storm and the burglary. Sometimes they asked questions which the Amazons found a little difficult to answer, though Captain Flint helped them out. Even Mr. Jackson, the powerful, strong native from Hollyhow, wanted to know exactly how the swallows had found the box. At last the native talk began to slacken. "'What about packing up?' said Mrs. Blackett to the Amazons. "'You can put everything in the launch and come in it with me, and we can tow the Amazon.' "'Tow? Amazon?' said Nancy in horror. "'We're coming home under sail. We want no salvage.' "'Everything's so wet here,' said the mother of the swallows. "'You'd better come back with me to Holly Howe.' "'Not now,' begged Titty. "'We're quite dry, and we've got a whole tin of pemmican left, and lots of bun loaf.' And it's our last day. It would have been very dreadful to be swept home in a flood of natives, even of the nicest sort. Half the pleasure of visiting different countries is sailing home afterwards. Besides, she had to say goodbye to the island. John, Susan and Roger also begged to be allowed to stay. Nancy and Peggy flatly refused to go. "'What if it comes on to blow again?' said the swallow's mother. "'Here Captain Flint spoke. "'It's not going to do that,' he said. "'It was just the first of our autumn thunderstorms. "'It's blown itself out now, and I shouldn't be surprised "'if there's a dead calm before evening. "'It may rain again tomorrow, but I'm, I'll almost guarantee good weather for today.' And so it was agreed. Everything not wanted for the day was to be packed into Mr. Jackson's boat, if it was to go to Hollyhow, and into the launch, if it belonged to the Amazons. The launch would tow Mr. Jackson and his boat as far as the Hollyhow Bay, so that the two mothers could be together in the cabin. We've got a lot more to say to each other, said Mrs. Blackett. "'About coming next year,' said Peggy and Titty together. Mm, "'Perhaps,' said their mothers. "'The packing of Mr Jackson's boat came first. "'Captain Flint lent a hand, and it didn't take long. "'The sodden tents were rolled up. "'I'll spread them to dry after,' said Mr Jackson. "'The blankets were stuffed into a sack. "'Nancy?' wanted to empty the hay out of the hay bags and make a last blaze on the campfire. Nay, said Mr. Jackson, it's good hay, that. 
so it was spared to be eaten by cows. All the swallow's things were stowed in Jackson's boat. Nothing was left but the big kettle for making tea, stores for the day, the parrot cage, and John's tin box. You don't want that, said Mother. It's got the ship's papers in it, said Captain John. We'll keep our tent, said Captain Nancy, but we shan't want our sleeping bags and things. At last the natives were ready to go. Captain Flint said, Goodbye. Are you going too? said Titty. I'm going in the launch with the others, he said. I've got something to say to your mother about next year, and I've a lot to do, for I'm going to London tomorrow. There's that monkey to see about, you know. But I'll keep a lookout for you towards evening. At last the launch chug-chugged away from the island, with the two rowing boats towing astern. Captain Flint's on a short painter, and Mr Jackson's on a long one, from the port and starboard quarters. The natives waved as the launch moved off. Goodbye, Swanos, called Mrs Blackett. I shall expect you others when I see you. Don't be late, called Mother. If you're home by seven, I'll bring Vicky down to the boathouse. She'd like to meet the sailors coming home from sea with a parrot. Goodbye, Amazons. Goodbye, goodbye, called Nancy and Peggy. You will promise to come again next year? We'll come, said Mother. After they were gone, the swallows and Amazons looked at each other. They were rather glum. It's the natives, said Nancy. Too many of them. They turn everything into a picnic. Mother doesn't, said Titty. Nor does ours when she's alone, said Nancy. And Captain Flint's not a bit like a native when he's by himself, said Titty. It's when they all get together, said Nancy. They can't help themselves, poor things. Well, they're gone now, said Peggy. Let's go on with the shipwreck. This is the day after we were thrown ashore. Now we've got to settle down for twenty years to watch for passing sails. But we're going home this afternoon, said Roger. You needn't say so, said Titty. But it was no good. Everyone knew, and nobody could get back into the old mood. We ought to bail the ships, said John. That was better. It was something that had to be done. There was a lot of water in both the ships. The wet thwarts were steaming and drying in the sun, which was already hot, but the sails were very wet. They hoisted the sails to dry them, and then went back to the camp. The camp looked much smaller. There were pale, unhealthy patches where the swallows' tents had stood and bleached the grass under the ground sheets by hiding it from the sun. The Amazon's tent stood alone and forlorn, without its companions. Come on, said Nancy, we've got to take it down anyway, so to, to strike it, I mean, so we might as well set about it. It was stiff work getting the poles out of the hems in the wet canvas, but everybody helped. The tent was loosely rolled up, 
the poles were taken to pieces and made into a bundle and wrapped in the ground sheet. The swallows and Amazons looked sadly round their camping ground. There was now nothing but the fireplace with its feebly burning fire. The square, pale patches where the tents had been. The parrot's cage in a patch of sunlight and Susan's kettle and a few mugs and the pemmican tin and the bun loaf and John's tin box to show that it had ever been the home of the explorers and their pirate friends. When we've gone, said Titty, someone else may discover it. They'll know it's a camp because of the fireplace, but they'll think the natives made it. If anyone takes it, we'll barbecue them, said Nancy Blackett. It's our island, yours and ours, and we'll defend it against anybody. We're going to school at the end of the summer, said Peggy. So are we, said Susan. Well, we won't be in school forever, said Nancy. We'll be grown up, and then we'll live here all the year round. So will we, said Titty. And in the winter we'll fetch our food over the ice on sledges. I shall be going to sea some day, said John, and so will Roger. But we'll always come back here on leave. I'll bring my monkey, said Roger. And the parrot shall always come, said Titty. Well, it's no good hanging about, said Nancy. Let's put to sea. Everything left was carried down to the harbour and stowed in the ships. Susan emptied the kettle on the fire. Titty took the parrot all over the island so that when they got home it would remember her favourite places. At the last minute, John thought of the rope for hoisting the lantern on the lighthouse tree. He ran back there and loosed one end of the rope so that it ran over the bow high overhead and came down with a thump on the damp ground. He coiled it and brought it to the harbour. Then they put to sea. The waves had gone down and so had the wind, but there was still a strong swell. Wind's from the south, said Captain Nancy. We'll beat into it. We know a fine place for a landing down the lake, and then we'll have to, then we'll have the wind with us for the run home. We'll follow you, said Captain John. He wanted Swallow to be the last to leave. In Swallow, Roger was in the bows, Abel Seaman Titty and the big parrot cage in the bottom of the boat just aft of the mast, and Susan and John in the stern. John was steering. Soon after they'd worked Swallow out of the harbour and she was sailing on the port tack, Titty, who had been talking to the parrot, said, Captain John, how are we to put Polly onto the ship's articles? Well, you've got a captain and a mate and an able seaman and a boy. I'll sign him on as ship's parrot, said Captain John. Have you got the ship's papers here? asked Titty. It would never do for him to sign on after the voyage was over. John handed the tiller to the mate, opened his tin box and dug out the articles that had been assigned by everyone so long ago on the peak of Darien. There was plenty of room for another hand, 
he wrote, Polly, ship's parrot. Then he gave the paper to the able seaman. You'll have to sign for him, he said. But the able seaman had opened the parrot's cage, and the parrot came out in a stately manner, as if he knew he was wanted on business. You can't exactly sign, said Titty, but lots of sailors can't. You must wet your dirty claw and make your mark. Pieces of eight, said the parrot. He's asking about his pay, said John. The able seaman wetted the parrot's very dirty claw and put the paper under it. The parrot stepped firmly in the right place and left a good print of his claw, though he did put the point of one toe through the paper. Titty wrote beside it, Polly, his mark. Ready about, cried Susan, and John and Titty ducked their heads as the boom came over, and Swallow slipped round and off on the other tack, hesitating for hardly a moment, and then butting cheerfully through the waves. Doesn't Amazon look fine, said Susan, looking at the little white-sailed boat ahead of them, with her fluttering black and white flag and her two red-capped sailors. Swallow must look just as fine, said Captain John. Finer, said Titty. We've got a brown sail. They sailed on, tacking from one side of the lake to the other, and back again, until they were within a mile of the steamer pier at the foot of the lake. Here they were passed by one of the big lake steamers, crowded with passengers, who came to the side and pointed. The captain, who was steering her, took out his binoculars and looked through them at the little swallow. By now the news had run all over Rio and up and down the lake about the way in which the swallows had found the box that had been stolen from Mr. Turner's houseboat. Suddenly a loud cheer sounded over the water, and again, and again. The passengers waved their hats and shouted. What is the matter with the natives on the steamer? said Roger. Then one of the sailors ran after the flagstaff at the steamer's stern, and the big red ensign dropped to half-mast and then rose again. They're cheering at us, said Captain John, turning very red. How horrible. They've saluted, said Susan. Oughtn't we to answer? The Amazons are. They could see Peggy at the halyards, busy dipping the Jolly Roger. Titty shut the parrot in his cage and lowered Swallow's flag and raised it again. It's a good thing we're going away, said Captain John. They'll have forgotten about it by next year. The big steamer hurried on. The Amazon headed into a little bay on the western shore of the lake. The swallow followed her. There were woods all round the little bay, and a small stream ran into it. The swallows and Amazons landed close by the mouth of the stream. What a splendid cove, said Captain John. It's one of our most private haunts, said Captain Nancy, altogether free from natives. The road's miles away on the other side of the woods. No one ever comes here except us, and no one can see we're here, even from the water, unless they happen to look 
right in. They made their fire and boiled their kettle by the side of the little beck, noisy after the night's rain. The jetsam on the shore was very wet, but in the wood they found a few dry sticks here and there. They started the fire with a handful of dry moss. It was not easy to get it going, but once it was well lit, the fire burnt well enough to boil the kettle. Here, away from the island, they spent their last day, until Captain Nancy noticed that the lake was nearly calm. It's going to take us a long time to sail home, she said. What orders, Commodore? John started. He'd been thinking of something else. The fleet set sail and steers north, he said. Very slowly, the two little ships moved out of the bay into the open lake. There was very little wind, though now and again a cat's paw hurrying from the south helped them on their way and darkened the smooth, small waves. You'd never think it could have blown like it did in the night, said Roger. They sailed up the sail with the booms well out. Up in the woods on the high hillside, smoke was rising. They could hear the noise of the charcoal burner's axes in the now quiet air. They'll still be here when we're gone, said Titty. Who? said Susan. The savages, said Titty. The wind was dropping. The boom swung aft and the main sheet now and then caught the water and trailed in it. Sit on the lee side, able seaman, said John. That'll keep the boom out. Nancy in the Amazon was sitting on the lee side for the same reason. Hadn't we better row, said Roger. You want a motorboat, said Captain John. No, I don't, said Roger. Sail's the thing. Slowly, the fleet slipped past Wild Cat Island. The island was once more the uninhabited island that Titty had watched for so many days from the peak of Darien. And yet, it was not that island. John, looking at it, remembered the harbour and the leading lights and his swim all around it and the climbing of the great tree. For Roger, it would always be the place where he had swum for the first time. For Susan, it was the camp and housekeeping and cooking for a large family. Titty thought of it as Robinson's Crusoe's Island. It was her island more than anyone's because she'd been alone on it. She remembered the path she had cleared, and waking in the dark and hearing the owl. She remembered the dipper. She remembered getting Amazon out of the harbour. She looked suddenly across the lake to Cormorant Island, and then at Amazon slipping silently through the water a cable's length away. Had she ever really been anchored in Amazon out there in the dark? As they passed Houseboat Bay, Captain Flint rode out to say goodbye once more. Goodbye, they shouted. Till next year, he shouted back and rested on his oars and watched the fleet as it sailed slowly on towards the peak of Darien. Under the peak of Darien, the fleet broke up. There were more shouts of, Goodbye, remember the Alliance, come again next year, 
Three cheers for Wildcat Island. And they all cheered. Three cheers for the Swallows, shouted Nancy. And for the Amazons, they shouted back. John hauled his wind and stood in for the Hollyhow boathouse. Amazon held on her course. She was soon out of sight beyond the further point of the bay. I wish it wasn't over, said Roger. No more pemmican anyway, said Susan. What about singing salt beef, said Titty. So they sang. Salt beef, salt beef is our relief. Salt beef and brisket beddow. Salt beef, salt beef is our relief. Salt beef and brisket beddow. While you on shore and a great many more on dainty dishes, Fredo, don't forget your old shipmate. Falderall de riddle, falderall dear doe. Susan is the old shipmate, said Roger. We all are, said John. What's the song they sing at the end of the voyage, said Susan. Titty began, and the others joined in at once, for they all knew it. Oh, soon we'll hear the old man say, Leave her, Johnny, leave her. You can go ashore and take your pay. It's time for you to leave her. Leave her, Johnny, leave her like a man. Leave her, Johnny, leave her. Oh, leave her, Johnny, leave her while you can. It's time for us to leave her. Who was Johnny? said Roger. Oh, hello, there's Mother and Vicky coming down the field. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 27, The Centaur and the Sneak. I bet you wish you hadn't given up divination now, don't you, Hermione? asked Pavati, smirking. It was breakfast time. Two days after the sacking of Professor Trelawney, and Pavati was curling her eyelashes around her wand and examining the effect on the back of her spoon. They were to have their first lesson with Firenze that morning. Not really, said Hermione indifferently, who was reading the Daily Prophet. I never really liked horses. She turned a page of the newspaper and scanned its columns. He's not a horse, he's a centaur, said Lavender, sounding shocked. A gorgeous centaur, sighed Pavati. Either way, he's still got four legs, said Hermione, coolly. Anyway, I thought you two were all upset that Trelawney had gone. We are, Lavender assured her. We went up to her office to see her. We took her some daffodils. Not the honking ones that Sprout's got. Nice ones. How is she? asked Harry. Not very good. Poor thing, said Lavender sympathetically. She was crying and saying she'd rather leave the castle forever than stay here where Umbridge is. And I don't blame her. Umbridge was horrible to her, wasn't it? I've got a feeling Umbridge has only just started being horrible, said Hermione darkly. Impossible, said Ron, who was tucking into a large piece of eggs and bacon. She can't get any worse than she's been already. You mark my words, she's going to want revenge on Dumbledore for appointing a new teacher without consulting her, said Hermione. 
closing the newspaper, especially another part human. You saw the look on her face when she saw Firenze. After breakfast, Hermione departed for her arithmancy class as Harry and Ron followed Pavati and Lavender into the entrance hall leading for divination. Aren't we going to, up to the North Tower? asked Ron, looking puzzled as Pavati bypassed the marble staircase. Pavati looked at him scornfully over her shoulder. How do you expect Ferenzi to climb that ladder? We're in classroom 11 now. It was on the notice board yesterday. Classroom 11 was on the ground floor along the corridor leading off the entrance hall from the opposite side to the great hall. Harry knew that it was one of those classrooms that were never used regularly and therefore had the slightly neglected feeling of a cupboard or storeroom. When he entered it right behind Ron and found himself in the middle of a forest clearing, he was therefore momentarily stunned. What the? The classroom floor had become springily mossy and trees were growing out of it. Their leafy branches fanned across the ceiling and windows so that the room was full of slanting shafts of soft, dappled green light. The students who had already arrived were sitting on the earthy floor with their backs resting against tree trunks and boulders, arms wrapped round their knees or folded tightly across their chests, and all looking rather nervous. In the middle of the clearing, where there were no trees, stood Ferenzi. Harry Potter, he said, holding out a hand when Harry entered. Uh, hi, said Harry, shaking hands with the centaur, who surveyed him unblinkingly through those astonishing blue eyes, but did not smile. Um, uh, good to see you. And you, said the centaur, inclining his white blonde head. It was foretold that we would meet again. Harry noticed that there was the shadow of a hoof-shaped bruise on Firenze's chest. As he turned to join the rest of the class on the ground, he saw they were all looking at him in awe, apparently deeply impressed that he was on speaking terms with Firenze, whom they seemed to find intimidating. When the door was closed and the last student had sat down on a tree stump beside the waste paper basket, Ferenzi gestured around the room. Professor Dumbledore has kindly arranged this classroom for us, said Ferenzi, when everyone had settled down, in imitation of my natural habitat. I would have preferred to teach you in the Forbidden Forest, which was, until Monday, my home, but that is no longer possible. Please, uh, sir, said Pavati breathlessly, raising her hand. Why not? 
We've been there with Hagrid. We're not frightened. It's not a question of your bravery, said Ferenzi, but of my position. I cannot return to the forest. My herd has banished me. Heard, said Lavender in a confused voice, and Harry knew she was thinking of cows. What? Oh! Comprehension dawned on her face. There are more of you, she said, stunned. Did Hagrid breed you like the Thestrals? asked Dean eagerly. Ferenzi turned his head very slowly to face Dean, who seemed to realise at once that he'd said something very offensive. I, I, I didn't mean, I, I meant, uh, sorry, he finished in a hushed voice. Centaurs are not the servants or the playthings of humans, said Ferenzi quietly. There was a pause. Then Pavati raised her hand again. Please, sir, why have the other centaurs banished you? Because I have agreed to work for Professor Dumbledore, said Ferenzi. They see this as a betrayal of our kind. Harry remembered how nearly four years ago the centaur Bane had shouted at Ferenzi for allowing Harry to ride to safety on his back. He had called him a common mule. He wondered whether it had been Bane who had kicked Ferenzi in the chest. Let us begin, said Ferenzi. He swished his long palomino tail, raised his hand towards the leafy canopy overhead, then lowered it slowly, and as he did so, the light in the room dimmed so that they now seemed to be sitting in a forest clearing by twilight, and stars appeared on the ceiling. There were oohs and gasps, and Ron said audibly, Blimey. Lie back on the floor, said Ferenzi in his calm voice, and observe the heavens. Here is written, for those who can see, the fortune of our races. Harry stretched out on his back and gazed upwards at the ceiling. A twinkling red star winked at him from overhead. I know that you have learnt the names of the planets and their moons in astronomy, said Ferenzi's calm voice, and that you have mapped the star's progress through the heavens. Centaurs have unravelled the mysteries of these movements over centuries. Our findings teach us that the future may be glimpsed in the sky above us. Professor Trelawney did astrology with us, said Pavati, excitedly raising her hand in front of her so that it stuck up in the air as she lay on her back. Mars causes accidents and burns and things like that, and when it makes an angle to Saturn, like now, she drew a right angle in the air above her, that means people need to be extra careful when handling hot things. That, said Ferenzi, Calmly, 
is human nonsense. Pavati's hand fell limply to her side. Trivial hurts, tiny human accidents, said Ferenzi as his hooves thudded over the mossy floor. These are of no more significance than the scurrying of ants to the wide universe and are unaffected by planetary movements. Professor Trelawney, began Pavati in a hurt and indignant voice, is human, said Ferenzi simply, and is therefore blinkered and fettered by the limitations of your kind. Harry turned his head very slightly to look at Pavati. She looked very offended, as did several of the people surrounding her. Sibyl Trelawney may have seen, I do not know, continued Ferenzi, and Harry heard the swishing of his tail again as he walked up and down before them. But she wastes her time, in the main, on the self-flattering nonsense humans call fortune-telling. I, however, am here to explain the wisdom of centaurs, which is impersonal and impartial. We watch the skies for the great tides of evil or change that are sometimes marked there. It may take ten years to be sure of what we are seeing. Ferenzi pointed to the red star directly above Harry. In the past decade, the indications have been that wizard kind is living through nothing more than a brief calm between two wars. Mars, bringer of battle, shines brightly above us, suggesting that the fight must soon break out again. How soon centaurs may attempt to define by the burning of certain herbs and leaves, by the observation of fume and flame. It was the most unusual lesson Harry had ever attended. They did indeed burn sage and mallow sweet there on the classroom floor, and Firenze told them to look for certain shapes and symbols to the pungent fumes, but he seemed perfectly unconcerned that not one of them could see any of the signs that he described telling them that humans were hardly ever good at this, that it took centaurs years and years to become competent, and finished by telling them that it was foolish to, too mu to put too much faith in such things anyway, because even centaurs sometimes read them wrongly. He was nothing like any human teacher that Harry had ever had. His priority did not seem to be to teach them what he knew, but rather to impress upon them that nothing, not even Centaur's knowledge, was foolproof. He's not very definite on anything, is he? said Ron in a low voice as they put out their mallow sweet fire. I mean, I could do with a few more details about this war we're about to have, couldn't you? The bell rang right outside the classroom door and everyone jumped. 
Harry had completely forgotten they were still inside the castle and quite convinced that he was really in the forest. The class filed out looking slightly perplexed. Harry and Ron were on the point of following them when Firenze called. Harry Potter, a word, please. Harry turned. The centaur advanced a little towards him. Ron hesitated. You may stay, Firenze told him, but close the door, please. Ron hastened to obey. Harry Potter, you are a friend of Hagrid's, are you not? said the centaur. Yes, said Harry. Then give him a warning from me. His attempt is not working. He would do better to abandon it. His attempt is not working, Harry repeated blankly. And he would do better to abandon it, said Ferenzi, nodding. I would warn Hagrid myself, but I am banished. It would be unwise for me to go too near the forest now. Hagrid has troubles enough without a centaur's battle. But what, what is Hagrid attempting to do? said Harry nervously. Ferenzi surveyed Harry impassively. Hagrid has recently rendered me a great service, said Ferenzi. And he has long since earned my respect for the care he shows all living creatures. I shall not betray his secret, but he must be brought to his senses. The attempt is not working. Tell him, Harry Potter, good day to you. The um, happiness Harry had felt in the aftermath of the Quibbler interview had long since evaporated. As a dull march blurred into a squally April, his life seemed to have become one long series of worries and problems again. Umbridge had continued attending all Care of Magical Creatures lessons, so it had been very difficult to deliver Firenze's warning to Hagrid. At last, Harry had managed it by pretending he'd lost his copy of Fantastic Beasts and where to find them and doubling back after class one day. When he'd repeated Firenze's words, Hagrid gazed at him for a moment through his puffy, blackened eyes, apparently taken aback. Then he seemed to pull himself together. Nice bloke, Ferenzi, he said gruffly, but he doesn't know what he's talking about on this. The attempt's coming on fine. Hagrid, what are you up to? asked Harry seriously, because you've got to be careful. Umbridge has already sacked Trelawney and if you ask me, she's on a roll. If you're doing anything you shouldn't be, you'll there's things more important than keeping a job, said Hagrid. 
though his hands shook slightly as he said this, and a basin full of gnarl droppings crashed to the floor. Don't worry about me, Harry. Just get along now, there's a good lad. Harry had no choice but to leave Hagrid mopping up the dung all over his floor, but he felt thoroughly dispirited as he trudged back up to the castle. Meanwhile, as the teachers and Hermione persisted in reminding them, the owls were drawing ever nearer. All the fifth years were suffering from stress to some degree, but Hannah Abbott became the first to receive a calming draught from Madame Pumphrey after she burst into tears during her apology and sobbed that she was too stupid to take exams and wanted to leave school now. If it had not been for the DA lessons, Harry thought he would have been extremely unhappy. He sometimes felt he was living for the hours he spent in the room of requirement working hard but thoroughly enjoying himself at the same time, swelling with proud pride as he looked around at his fellow DA members and saw how far they had come. Indeed, Harry sometimes wondered how Umbridge was going to react when all the members of the DA received outstanding in their defence against the dark arts owls. They'd finally started work on Patronuses, which everybody had been very keen to practice, though, as Harry kept reminding them, producing a Patronus in the middle of a brightly lit classroom when they were not under threat was very different from producing it when confronted by something like a Dementor. Oh, don't be such a killjoy, said Joe brightly, watching her silvery swan-shaped Patronus soar around the room of requirement during their last lesson before Easter. They're so pretty. They're not supposed to be pretty. They're supposed to protect you, said Harry patiently. What we really need is a boggart or something. That's how I learnt. I had to conjure a Patronus while the boggart was pretending to be a Dementor. But that would be really scary, said Lavender, who was shooting puffs of silent vapour out of the end of her wand. And I still can't do it, she added angrily. Neville was having trouble too. His face was screwed up in concentration, but only feeble wisps of silver smoke issued from his wand tip. You've got to think of something happy, Harry reminded him. I'm trying, said Neville miserably, who was trying so hard his round face was actually shining with sweat. Harry, I think I'm doing it, yelled Seamus, who had been brought along to his first ever DA meeting by Dean. Look, ah, it's gone. But it was definitely something hairy, Harry. A man is Patronus, a shining silver otter, was gambling around here. They are sort of nice, aren't they? she said, looking at it fondly. <clears throat> the door of the room of requirement opened and closed. Harry looked round to see who had entered, but there didn't seem to be anyone there. 
It was a few moments before he realised that the people close to the door had fallen silent. Next thing he knew, something was tugging at his robe somewhere near the knee. He looked down and saw, to his very great astonishment, Dobby, the house elf, peering at, up at him from beneath his usual eight woolly hats. Hi, Dobby, he said. What are you... What's wrong? The elf's eyes were wide with terror and he was shaking. The members of the DA closest to Harry had fallen silent. Everyone in the room was watching Dobby. The few Patronuses people had managed to conjure faded away into silver mist, leaving the room looking much darker than before. Harry Potter, sir, squeaked the elf, trembling from head to foot. Harry Potter, sir, Dobby has come to warn you, but the house elves have been warned not to tell. He ran, head first at the wall. Harry, who had some experience of Dobby's habits of self-punishment, made to seize him, but Dobby merely bounced off the stone, cushioned by his eight hats. Hermione and a few of the other girls let out squeaks of fear and sympathy. What's happened, Dobby? Harry asked, grabbing the elf's tiny arm and holding him away from anything with which he might seek to hurt himself. Harry Potter, she, she, Dobby hit himself hard on the nose with his free fist. Harry sees that too. Who is she, Dobby? But he thought he knew, surely only one. She could induce such fear in Dobby. Only one she could induce such fear in Dobby. The elf looked up at him, slightly cross-eyed, and mouthed wordlessly. Umbridge? asked Harry, horrified. Dobby nodded and tried to bang his head on Harry's knees. Harry held him at arm's length. What about her, Dobby? She hasn't found out about this, about us, about the DA? He read the answer on the elf's stricken face. His hands held fast by Harry. The elf tried to kick himself and fell to the floor. Is she coming? Harry asked quietly. Dobby let out a howl and then began beating his bare feet hard on the floor. Yes, Harry Potter, yes! Harry straightened up and looked around at the motionless, terrified people gazing at the thrashing elf. What are you waiting for? Harry bellowed. Run! They all pelted towards the exit at once, forming a scrum at the door. Then people burst through. Harry could hear them sprinting along the corridors and hoped they had the sense not to try and make it all the way to their dormitories. It was only ten to nine if they just took refuge in the library or the aulery, which were both nearer. Harry, come on, shrieked Hermione from the centre of the knot of people now fighting to get out. He scooped up Dobby, who was still attempting to do himself serious injury, and ran out with the elf in his arms to join the back of the queue. Dobby, this is an order. Get back down to the kitchen with the other elves, and if she asks you whether you warn me, lie and say no, said Harry. And I forbid you to hurt yourself, he added, dropping the elf as he made it over the threshold at last and slammed the door behind him. 
Thank you, Harry Potter, squeaked Dobby, and he streaked off. Harry glanced left and right. The others were all moving so fast he caught only glimpses of flying heels at either end of the corridor before they vanished. He started to run right. There was a boy's bathroom up ahead. He could pretend he'd been in there all the time if he could just reach it. Ah! Something caught him around the ankles and he fell spectacularly skidding along on his front for six feet before coming to a halt. Someone behind him was laughing. He rolled over onto his back and saw Malfoy concealed in a niche beneath an ugly dragon-shaped vase. Trip jinx spotter, he said. Hey, Professor. Professor, I've got one. Umbridge came bustling round the far corner, breathless, but wearing a delighted smile. It's him, she said jubilantly at the sight of Harry on the floor. Excellent, Draco. Excellent. Oh, very good. Fifty points to Slytherin. I'll take him from here. Stand up, Potter. Harry got to his feet, glaring at the pair of them. He had never seen Umbridge looking so happy. She seized his arm in a vice-like grip and turned, beaming broadly to Malfoy. You hop along and see if you can round up any more of them, Draco, she said. Tell the others to look in the library. Anyone out of breath? Check the bathrooms. Miss Parkinson can do the girls' ones. Off you go. And you, she added in her softest, most dangerous voice, as Malfoy walked away. You can come with me to the headmaster's office, Potter. They were at the stone gargoyle within minutes. Harry wondered how many of the others had been caught. He thought of Ron. Mrs Weasley would kill him. And of how Hermione would feel if she was expelled before she could take her owls. And it had been Seamus's very first meeting. And Neville had been getting so good. Fizzing Wisby sang Umbridge. The stone gargoyle jumped aside. The wall behind split open and they ascended the moving stone staircase. They reached the polished door with the griffin knocker but Umbridge did not bother to knock. She strode straight inside, still holding tight to Harry. The office was full of people. Dumbledore was sitting behind his desk, his expression serene, the tips of his long fingers together. Professor McGonagall stood rigidly beside him, her face extremely tense. Cornelius Fudge, Minister for Magic, was rocking backwards and forwards on his toes beside the fire, apparently immensely pleased with the situation. Kingsley Shacklebolt and a tough-looking wizard with a very short, wiry hair, whom Harry did not recognise, were positioned either side of the door like guards, and the freckled, 
bespectacled form of Percy Weasley hovered excitedly beside the wall, a quill and heavy scroll of parchment in his hands, apparently poised to take notes. The portraits of old headmasters and headmistresses were not shamming deep sleep tonight. All of them were alert and serious, watching what was happening below them. As Harry entered, a few flitted into neighbouring frames and whispered urgently into their neighbour's ear. Harry pulled himself free of Umbridge's grasp as the door swung shut behind them. Cornelius Fudge was glaring at him with a kind of vicious satisfaction on his face. Well, he said, well, well, well. Harry replied with the dirtiest look he could muster. His heart drummed madly inside him, but his brain was oddly cool and clear. He was heading back to Gryffindor Tower, said Umbridge. There was an indecent excitement in her voice, the same callous pleasure Harry had heard when she watched Professor Trelawney dissolving with misery in the entrance hall. The Malfoy boy, the Malfoy boy cornered him. Did he, did he, said Fudge appreciatively. I must remember to tell Lucius. Well, Potter, I expect you know why you're here. Harry fully intended to respond with a defiant yes. His mouth had opened and the word was half-formed when he caught sight of Dumbledore's face. Dumbledore was not looking directly at Harry. His eyes were fixed on a point just over his shoulder, but as Harry stared at him, he shook his head a fraction of an inch to each side. Harry changed direction mid-word. Uh, uh, no. I beg your pardon, said Fudge. No, said Harry firmly. You don't know why you're here? No, I don't, said Harry. Fudge looked incredulously from Harry to Professor Umbridge. Harry um, took advantage of his momentary inattention to steal another quick look at Dumbledore, who gave the carpet the tiniest of nods and the shadow of a wink. So you have no idea, said Fudge, in a voice positively sagging with sarcasm, why Professor Umbridge has brought you to this office? You are not aware that you have broken any school rules? School rules, said Harry, no. Or ministry decrees, amended Fudge angrily. Not that I'm aware of, said Harry blandly. His heart was still hammering very fast. It was almost worth telling these lies to watch Fudge's blood pressure rising, but he couldn't see how on earth he would get away with them. If somebody had tipped off umbrage about the DA, then he, the leader, might as well be packing his trunk right now. It's news to you, is it? said Fudge, his voice now thick with anger that an illegal student organisation has been discovered within this school? Yes, it is, said Harry, hoisting an unconvincing look of innocence, surprise on his face. 
I think, Minister, said Umbridge, silkily from beside him, we might make better progress if we f if I fetch our informant. Yes, yes, do, said Fudge, nodding, and he glanced maliciously at Dumbledore as Umbridge left the room. There's nothing like a good witness, is there, Dumbledore? Nothing at all, Cornelius, said Dumbledore gravely, inclining his head. There was a wait of several minutes in which nobody looked at each other when Harry heard the door open behind him. Umbridge moved past him into the room, gripping by the shoulder Cho's curly-haired friend Marietta, who was hiding her face in her hands. Don't be scared, dear, don't be frightened, said Professor Umbridge softly, patting her on the back. It's quite all right now. You've done the right thing. The minister is very pleased with you. He's telling your mother what a good girl you've been. Marietta's mother, minister, she added, looking up at Fudge, is Madame Edgecombe from the Department of Magical Transportation. Flu network office. She's been helping us police the Hogwarts fires, you know. Jolly good, jolly good, said Fudge heartily. Like mother, like daughter, eh? Well, come on now, dear, look up. Don't be shy. Let's hear what you've got to... Uh, galloping gargoyles? As Marietta raised her head, Fudge leapt backwards in shock, nearly landing himself in the fire. He cursed and stamped on the hem of his cloak, which had started to smoke. Marietta gave a wail and pulled the neck of her robes right up to her eyes, but not before everyone had seen that her face was horribly disfigured by a series of close-set purple pustules that had spread across her nose and cheeks to form the word sneak. Never mind the spots now, dear, said Umbridge impatiently. Just tell your, t take your ropes away from your mouth and tell the minister. But Marietta gave another muffled wail and shook her, shook her head frantically. Oh, very well, you silly girl, I'll tell him, snapped Umbridge. She hitched her sickly smile back onto her face and said, Well, minister... Miss Edgecombe here came to my office shortly after dinner this evening and told me she had something she wanted to tell me. She said that if I proceeded to a secret room on the seventh floor, sometimes known as the room of requirement, I would find out something to my advantage. I questioned her a little further and she admitted there was to be some kind of meeting there. Unfortunately, at that point, this hex, she waved impatiently at Marietta's concealed face, came into operation, and upon catching sight of her face in my mirror, the girl became too distressed to tell me any more. Well now, said Fudge, fixing Marietta with what he evidently imagined was a kind and fatherly look. It's very brave of you, my dear, coming to tell Professor Umbridge. You did exactly the right thing. 
Now, will you tell me what happened at this meeting? What was its purpose? Who was there? But Marietta would not speak. She merely shook her head again, her eyes wide and fearful. Haven't we got a counter-jinx for this? Fudge asked Umbridge impatiently, gesturing at Marietta's face, so she can speak freely. I um, have not yet managed to find one, Umbridge admitted grudgingly. And Harry felt a surge of pride in Hermione's jinxing ability. But it doesn't matter if she won't speak. I can take up the story from here. You will remember, Minister, that I sent you a report back in October that Potter had met a number of fellow students in the Hogshead in Hogsmeade. And what's your evidence for that? Cut in Professor McGonagall. I have testimony from Willie Widdershins Minerva, who happened to be in the bar at the time. He was heavily bandaged, it is true, but his hearing was quite unimpaired, said Umbridge smugly. He heard every word Potter said and hastened straight to the school to report to me. Oh, so that's why he wasn't prosecuted for setting up all those regurgitating toilets, said Professor McGonagall, raising her eyebrows. What an interesting insight into our justice system. Blatant corruption, roared the portrait of the corpulent, red-nosed wizard on the wall behind Dumbledore's desk. The Ministry did not cut deals with petty criminals in my day. No, sir, they did not. Thank you, Fortescue, that'll do, said Dumbledore softly. The purpose of Potter's... The purpose of Potter's meeting with these students, continued Professor Umbridge, was to persuade them to join an illegal society whose aim was to learn spells and curses the Ministry has decided are inappropriate for school age. I think you'll find you're wrong there, Dolores, said Dumbledore quietly, peering at her over the half-moon spectacles perched halfway down his crooked nose. Harry stared at him. He couldn't see how Dumbledore was going to talk him out of this one. If Willie Widdershins had indeed heard every word he had said in the hog's head, there was simply no escaping it. Oh, ho, oh, said Fudge, bouncing up and down on the balls of his feet again. Yes, do let's hear the latest cock and bull story designed to pull Potter out of trouble. Go on then, Dumbledore, go on. Willie Widdishins was lying, was he? Or was it Potter's identical twin in the hogshead that day? Or is there the usual simple explanation involving a reversal of time, a dead man coming back to life, and a couple of invisible dementors? Percy Weasley let out a hearty laugh. Oh, very good, Minister, very good. Harry could have kicked him. Then he saw, to his astonishment, that Dumbledore was smiling gently too. 
Cornelius, I do not deny, and nor, I am sure, does Harry, that he was in the hogshead that day, nor that he was trying to recruit students to a defence against the dark arts group. I am merely pointing out that Dolores is quite wrong to suggest that such a group was, at the time, illegal. If you remember, the Ministry decree banning all student societies was not put into effect until two days after Harry's Hogsmeade meeting, so he was not breaking any rules at all at the Hog's Head. Percy looked as though he had been struck in the face by something very heavy. Fudge remained motionless in mid-bounce, his mouth hanging open. Umbridge recovered first. That's all very fine, Headmaster, she said, smiling sweetly. But we are now nearly six months on from the introduction of Educational Decree Number 24. If the first meeting was not illegal, all those that have happened since most certainly are. Well, said Dumbledore, surveying her with polite interest over the top of his interlocked fingers, they certainly would be if they had continued after the decree came into effect. Do you have any evidence that any such meetings continued? As Dumbledore spoke, Harry heard a rustle behind him and rather thought Kingsley whispered something. He could have sworn too that he felt something brush against his side, a gentle something like a draught or bird wings. But looking down, he saw nothing there. Evidence, repeated Umbridge, with that horrible, wide, toad-like smile. Have you not been listening, Dumbledore? Why do you think Miss Edgecombe is here? Oh, she can tell us about six months' worth of meetings, said Dumbledore, raising her eyebrows. I was under the impression that she was merely reporting a meeting tonight. Miss Edgecombe, said Umbridge at once, tell us how long these meetings have been going on, dear. You can simply nod or shake your head, I'm sure. That won't make the spots worse. Have they been happening regularly over the last six months? Harry felt a horrible plummeting in his stomach. This was it. They had hit a dead end of solid evidence that not even Dumbledore would be able to shift aside. Just nod or shake your head, dear, Umbridge said coaxingly to Marietta. Come on now, that won't reactivate the jinx. Everyone in the room was gazing at the top of Marietta's face. Only her eyes... Oh. Only her eyes... were visible between the pulled-up robes and her curly fringe. Perhaps it was a trick of the firelight, but her eyes looked oddly blank, and then, to Harry's utter amazement, Marietta shook her head. Umbridge looked quickly at Fudge, and then back at Marietta. 
I don't think you understood the question, did you, dear? I'm asking you whether, you're, whether you've been going to these meetings for the past six months. You have, haven't you? Again, Marietta shook her head. What do you mean by shaking your head, dear? said Umbridge in a testy voice. I would have thought her meaning was quite clear, said Professor McGonagall harshly. There have been no secret meetings for the past six months. Is that correct, Miss Edgecombe? Marietta nodded. But there was a meeting tonight, said Umbridge furiously. There was a meeting, Miss Edgecombe. You told me about it in the Room of Requirement. And Potter was the leader, was he not? Potter organised it. Potter, why are you shaking your head, girl? Well, usually when a person shakes their head, said McGonagall coldly, they mean no. So, unless Miss Edgecombe is using a form of sign language as yet known to humans... Professor Umbridge seized Marietta, pulled her round to face her, and began shaking her very hard. A split second Dumbledore was on his feet, his wand raised. Kingsley started towards, and Umbridge leapt back from Marietta, waving her hands in the air as though they'd been burned. I cannot allow you to manhandle my students, Dolores, said Dumbledore, and for the first time he looked angry. You want to calm yourself, Madam Umbridge, said Kingsley in his deep, slow voice. You don't want to get yourself into trouble now. No, said Umbridge breathlessly, glancing up at the towering figure of Kingsley. I mean, yes, you're right. Shacklebolt, I, I, I forgot myself. Marietta was standing exactly where Umbridge had released her. She seemed neither perturbed by Umbridge's sudden attack nor relieved by her release. She was still clutching her robe up to her oddly blank eyes and staring straight ahead of her. A sudden suspicion connected to Kingsley's whisper and the thing he had felt shoot past him sprang into Harry's mind. Dolores, said Fudge, with the air of trying to settle something once and for all. The meeting tonight, the one we know definitely happened. Yes, said Umbridge, pulling herself together. Yes, we, well, Miss Edgecombe tipped me off, and I proceeded at once to the seventh floor, accompanied by certain trustworthy students, so as to catch those in the meeting red-handed. It appears they were forewarned of my arrival, however... Because when we reached the seventh floor, they were running in every direction. It doesn't matter that they were, however. I have all their names here. Miss Parkinson ran into the room of requirement for me to see if they'd left anything behind. We needed evidence. And the room provided. And to Harry's horror, she withdrew from her pocket the list of names that had been pinned up upon the Room of Requirements wall and handed it to Fudge. The moment I saw Potter's name on the list, I knew what we were dealing with, she said softly. Excellent, said Fudge, a smile spreading across his face. Excellent, Dolores, and by thunder. He looked up at Dumbledore, who was still standing beside Marietta, his wand held loosely in his hand. See, 
what they've named themselves, said Fudge quietly, Dumbledore's army. Dumbledore reached out and took the piece of parchment from Fudge. He gazed at the heading scribbled by Hermione months before and for a moment seemed unable to speak. Then he looked up, smiling. Well, the game is up, he said simply. Would you like a written confession from me, Cornelius, or will a statement before these witnesses suffice? Harry saw McGonagall and Kingsley look at each other. There was fear in both faces. He didn't understand what was going on, and nor apparently did Fudge. Statement, said Fudge slowly. What? I don't... Dumbledore's army, Cornelius, said Dumbledore, still smiling as he waved the list of names before Fudge's face. Not Potty's army, Dumbledore's army. But, but... Understanding blazed suddenly in Fudge's face. He took a horrified step back, yelped and jumped out of the fire again. You, he whispered, stamping again on his smouldering cloak. That's right, said Dumbledore pleasantly. You organised this? I did, said Dumbledore. You you recruited these students for your army? Tonight was supposed to be the first meeting, said Dumbledore. Merely to see whether they would be interested in joining me. I now see that it was a mistake to invite Miss Edgecombe, of course, Marietta nodded. Fudge looked from her to Dumbledore, his chest swelling. Then you've been plotting against me, he yelled. That's right, said Dumbledore cheerfully. No, said Harry. Kingsley flashed a look of warning at him. McGonagall widened her eyes threateningly, but it had suddenly dawned on Harry what Dumbledore was about to do and he couldn't let it happen. No, Professor Dumbledore. Be quiet, Harry, or I'm afraid you'll have to leave my office, said Dumbledore calmly. You shut up, Potter, barked Fudge, who was still ogling Dumbledore with a kind of horrified delight. Well, well, well. I came here tonight expecting to expel Potter, and instead... Instead you get to arrest me, said Dumbledore, smiling. It's like losing a nut and finding a galleon, isn't it? Weasley, cried Fudge, now positively quivering with delight. Weasley, have you written it all down? Everything he's said, his confession, have you got it? Uh, yes, sir. I think so, sir, said Percy eagerly, whose nose was splattered with ink from the speed of his note-taking. The bit about how he's been trying to build up an army against the Ministry, how he's been working to destabilise me. Yes, sir, I've got it, yes, said Percy, scanning his notes joyfully. Very well then, said Fudge, now radiant with glee. Duplicate your notes, Weasley, and send a copy to the Daily Prophet at once. If we send a fast owl, we should make it the morning edition. Percy dashed from the room, slamming the door behind him, and Fudge turned back to Dumbledore. You will now be escorted back to the Ministry, where you will be formally charged, then sent to Azkaban to await trial. Ah, said Dumbledore gently. Yes, 
Yes, I thought we might hit that little snack. Snag, said Fudge, his voice still vibrating with joy. I see no snag, Dumbledore. Well, said Dumbledore apologetically, I'm afraid I do. Oh, really? Well, it's just that you seem to be labouring under the delusion that I'm going to, what is the phrase, come quietly. I'm afraid I'm not going to come quietly at all, Cornelius. I have absolutely no intention of being sent to Azkaban. I could break out, of course, but what a waste of time. And frankly, I can think of a whole host of things I would rather be doing. Umbridge's face was growing steadily redder. She looked as though she was being filled with boiling water. Fudge stared at Dumbledore with a very silly expression on his face, as though he had just been stunned by a sudden blow and couldn't quite believe it had happened. He made a small choking noise, then looked round at Kingsley and the man with short grey hair, who, alone of everyone in the room, had in the room had remained entirely silent so far. The latter gave Fudge a reassuring nod and moved forwards a little away from the wall. Harry saw his hand drift almost casually towards his pocket. Don't be silly, Dawlish, said Dumbledore kindly. I'm sure you're an excellent aura. I seem to remember that you achieved outstanding in all your newts. But if you attempt to um, bring me in by force, I will have to hurt you. The man called Dawlish blinked rather foolishly. He looked towards Fudge again, but this time seemed to be hoping for a clue as to what to do next. So, sneered Fudge, recovering himself, you intend to take on Dawlish, Shacklebolt, Dolores and myself single-handed, do you, Dumbledore? Berlinsbid, no, said Dumbledore, smiling, not unless you are foolish enough to force me to. He will not be single-handed, said Professor McGonagall loudly, plunging her hand inside her robes. Oh, yes, he will, Minerva, said Dumbledore sharply. Hogwarts needs you. Enough of this rubbish, said Fudge, pulling out his own wand. Dawlish, Shacklebert, take him. Oh, oh dear. Enough of this rubbish, said Fudge, pulling out his own wand. Dawlish, Shacklebolt, take him. A streak of silver light flashed round the room. There was a bang like a gunshot and the floor trembled. A hand grabbed the scruff of Harry's neck and forced him down on the floor as a second silver flash went off. Several of the portraits yelled, forks screeched, and a cloud of dust filled the air. <clears throat> Coughing in the dust, Harry saw a dark figure fall to the ground with a crash in front of him. There was a shriek and a thud, and someone cried, No! Then there was the sound of breaking glass, frantically scuffling footsteps, a groan, and silence. Silence.
Harry struggled around to see who was half strangling him and saw Professor McGonagall crouched beside him. She had forced both him and Marietta out of harm's way. Dust was still floating gently down through the air onto them. Panting slightly, Harry saw a very tall figure moving towards them. Are you all right? Dumbledore asked. Yes, said Professor McGonagall, getting up and dragging Harry and Marietta with her. <clears throat> Dust was clearing. The wreckage of the office loomed into view. Dumbledore's desk had been overturned. All of the spindly tables had been knocked to the floor, their silver instruments in pieces. Fudge, Umbridge, Kingsley and Dawlish lay motionless on the floor. Forks, the phoenix, soared in wide circles above them, singing softly. <clears throat> Unfortunately, I had to hex Kingsley too, or it would have looked very suspicious, said Dumbledore in a low voice. He was remarkably quick on the uptake, modifying Miss Edgecombe's memory like that while everyone was looking the other way. Thank him for me, won't you, Minerva? Now... They will all awake very soon, and it will be best if they do not know that we had time to communicate. You, ma you must act as though no time has passed, as though they were merely knocked to the ground. They will not remember. Where will you go, Dumbledore? whispered Professor McGonagall. Grimald Place? Oh no, said Dumbledore with a grim smile. I'm not leaving to go into hiding. Fudge will soon wish he'd never dislodged me from Hogwarts, I promise you. Professor Dumbledore, Harry began. He didn't know what to say first, how sorry he was that he'd started the DA in the first place and caused all this trouble, or how terrible he felt that Dumbledore was leaving to save him from expulsion. But Dumbledore cut him off before he could say another word. Listen to me, Harry, he said urgently. You must study occlumacy as hard as you can. Do you understand me? Do everything Professor Snape tells you and practice it particularly every night before sleeping so that you can close your mind to bad dreams. You'll understand why soon enough, but you must promise me. The man called Dawlish was stirring. Dumbledore seized Harry's wrist. Remember, close your mind. But as Dumbledore's fingers closed over Harry's skin, a pain shot through the scar on his forehead and he felt again that terrible snake-like longing to strike Dumbledore, to bite him, to hurt him. You will understand, whispered Dumbledore. <clears throat> Fawkes circled the office and swooped low over him. Dumbledore released Harry, raised his hand, and grasped the phoenix's long golden tail. There was a flash of fire and the pair of them were gone. Where is he? yelled Fudge, pushing himself up from the floor. Where is he? I don't know, shouted Kingsley, also leaping to his feet. But he can't have disapparated, cried Umbridge. You can't do it from inside the school. The stairs, cried Dawlish. And he flung himself upon the door, wrenching it open and disappeared, followed closely by Kingsley and Umbridge. Fudge hesitated, then got slowly to his feet, brushing dust from his front. There was a long and painful silence. 
Well, Minerva, said Fudge nastily, straightening his torn shirt-sleeve, I'm afraid this is the end of your friend Dumbledore. You think so, do you? said Professor McGonagall scornfully. Fudge seemed not to hear her. He was looking round at the wrecked office. A few of the portraits hissed at him. One or two even made rude hand gestures. You'd better get these two off to bed, said Fudge, looking back as Professor McGonagall, with a dismissive nod towards Harry and Marietta. Professor McGonagall said nothing, but marched Harry and Marietta to the door. As it swung closed behind them, Harry heard Phineas Nigellus's voice. You know, Minister, I disagree with Dumbledore on many counts, but you cannot deny he's got style.